I'm going to uh, jump into the study with you, and uh, I'm going to start out by asking you uh, to just say the word yes, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. So when I count to three, let's all say yes together. One, two, three. Yes. yes. Okay. So here's the question. Will you be here next weekend? Yes. All right. Okay. Because this is a two-parter, all right? Um, when we look at this passage this morning, you're going to find that I'm going to leave you hanging, all right? So hopefully you can be here next weekend, and you, you said yes in the eyes of God, so no pressure, but I expect to see you to show up. So um, here's one thing I'm going to ask you. This is Labor Day weekend, and as you look around, you see the 11 o'clock service is fairly full, all right? Be aware that there's a whole lot of people gone this weekend and also that have been gone this summer. There's a lot of people that are new to New Hope that have been visiting over the last number of months who said, I'll be back after Labor Day. So if that is the case and you happen to have flexibility in your schedule and you can go to the 9 o'clock service or the Saturday night service, that would probably help a little bit with seating next week at the 11 o'clock service. But you can choose whichever one works for you. We'll make sure that there's plenty of seats for everybody. When we step into this particular study, though, we're coming into the really hard brass tacks of Scripture of what it all boils down to and why Jesus came. And you're going to see that unfold this morning. Before we step into Jesus going before Pilate for the trial, I'm going to ask you to pray with me that God would speak to your heart directly. Let's do that. Father, we come in here corporately, we sing corporately, we stand up together, and we rejoice. We take communion individually, and we look at your word individually. So God, we ask that you would speak individually to every individual here. I can't speak, Father, in the way that your Holy Spirit can, because only you know what's going on in the heart of every man and woman and student or child in this room. So God, I ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would not only reveal truth, but that you would speak directly to the individuals here, myself included. Father, we ask that you would take a very familiar story and cause it to be alive because your word is alive. You said it's sharper than a two-edged sword. So, Father, we ask that you would do your work and cause us to understand the things that you want us to see. And we invite the work of your Holy Spirit to do that. It's in Jesus' name we request this. Amen. We start out with two really, really big questions this morning. Ultimate questions, probably the biggest questions asked of all time. And the first one is presented by Caiaphas who is the high priest of Israel. He's got Jesus on trial and he's put Jesus under oath Jesus comes before the Supreme Court in an illegal proceeding. And in this illegal proceeding, he asked Jesus under oath to answer his question. You know what it means to be under oath. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So he does this with Jesus. Jesus is under oath. I swear, I adjure you is the word he uses. Do you swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God? Or so help you, you, in Jesus' case. Because that's who he's got in the room. He's adjuring him. Now, it boggles the mind that the judge of the entire earth, 
the judge of the universe, would allow himself to be arraigned before human judges. I can't get that through my head. He allows himself to be humiliated, to be mocked, to be spit on, as you're going to see this morning, and beaten with fist. The one who is truth is accused by liars, and he puts up with it. So John skips over the portion of the passage that I want you to understand before we jump into John 18. John left us at verse 27 last week by saying, Annas sent Jesus to Caiaphas. And the very next thing you read in verse 28, Jesus shows up in Pilate's house. So what happened in between? Well, Matthew recorded it for us, fortunately, and so did Mark. Why did John skip over it? Well, the story is so familiar. Remember, John wrote the book of John when he's probably in his 90s, 70 years after the fact. And the trial of Jesus is so well known by the early church and by the people in the community at large, he doesn't need to repeat all those details. And through the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's not moved to record that for us because others have. So what did we miss when he skipped over it? Well, Matthew tells us, Annas sent Jesus to Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest. He's a cunning individual, and it's the middle of the night, and he decides to hold Supreme Court session in his house, which is against the rules, and in the middle of the night, which is against the rules, somewhere around three in the morning. Now, he's the one, Caiaphas is the one, who originally proposed that Jesus should die on behalf of the entire nation. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, And Caiaphas' reaction was, this guy is too popular. It'd be better that he would die rather than the whole nation perish. Let's kill him. So that's who you're dealing with when you hear about Caiaphas. He's a plotter. So he puts Jesus on oath, and he asks one of our two big questions this morning. I want you to see the first question. It comes from Mark 14. You'll see it up on the screen. Mark 14, 60. The high priest stood up. And came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Here's the big question. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus holds nothing back at this point. Verse 62, and Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. At that point, he shreds his clothing because that's the reaction of the high priest when he hears what he considers to be blasphemy and rips his clothing off his chest. That's why John writes in verse 63, tearing his clothing, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fist and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Now, Jewish law, under Jewish law, you're not permitted to have trials at night, as I told you earlier. So what did they do at this point? Matthew tells us that they reconvened. They, they broke session, and they came back at daybreak. 
Sun rises on the eastern sky. They go to the Sanhedrin courtroom. They meet in the chambers and they pronounce a death sentence on him. But they're powerless to carry out the sentence because Rome has taken away their power. They can't execute anyone. So they escort Jesus, bound still as you learned last week, shackles behind his back, noose around his neck, can't pull too tight or he'll choke himself. They lead him to Caiaphas, black and blue. He's been beat in the face. So that's where John picks up. So when you have your Bible open to John 18 and you see verse 28, that's what happened in between verse 27 and verse 28. John 18, 28 says this now. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. The praetorium is Pilate's residence. It's his personal dwelling place when he's in Jerusalem. I want you to see this image on the screen so you have an understanding. This is um, in the very center of the screen, a little bit difficult to see, um, but you know, it's a 2,000 year old photo, so bear with me, okay? Some of you will catch on later. All right. It's not a 2,000-year-old photo, okay? But it's an artist reconstruction. In the very center of the photo, you've got these four high towers. And in the midst of the four high towers is what's known as the Praetorium, the Fortress of Antonio. Herod the Great built that fortress in honor of Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony, one of the great heroes of Rome, one of Herod's personal favorite friends, And so he calls this the Fortress Antonio. This is where the Roman soldiers live when they're stationed in Jerusalem. It's where the palace of Pilate is. Very important that you understand this because in front of it, you see a very large colonnade area, columns stacked one after the other. It's called the Portico of Solomon, part of Solomon's temple that still remained. That temple courtyard is attached to Fortress Antonio. However, That's Gentile territory. That's where the Romans live. And the Jews, we're told, according to John, didn't want to go in there. Now, first he says in verse 28 that it was early. And they bring Jesus to Pilate. Jesus has literally been up all night long. Whatever time he woke up on Thursday morning, he's awake all day long Thursday, all evening Thursday night, all night long Thursday night. And you know, you tend to get a little punchy when you've been awake that long. And Jesus has been beat in the midst of this. He's been on trial trying to answer questions. Now, Jewish leaders, I'm sorry, Roman leaders typically, when they started their work day, they started around daybreak, 5.30 in the morning, 6 in the morning. They had a very, very early start to their work day. They typically ended it by 11 in the morning. And they would use the afternoon to uh, uh, entertain dignitaries. But they would do the, the business of the court in the morning. So they bring Jesus very early, John tells us, in the morning to Pilate into the praetorium. And we're told in verse 28, they did not enter the praetorium because they don't want to be defiled because it's Passover. So it's Friday before Passover dinner. They bring Jesus to Pilate. They won't enter the courtroom themselves because if they go into seven days of defilement, They're going to have to miss the biggest celebration of the year. And they certainly don't want to miss the Super Bowl. They want to be at the Passover. It's a huge celebration. So they're going to stand out in the courtyard, and they're going to make Pilate do the shuttling back and forth. Now, think with me about the twisted devotion 
of the human mind and what we are capable of. They're operating under a degree of legalism in which they're so fastidious in their actions they wouldn't dare defile themselves by entering into Gentile territory. And in the same moment, they're trying to murder the Son of God and they've corrupted the court system to make it work. So do you understand what legalism can do to you? It justifies the end. You've got to go through all these hoops to get there, but eventually we're going to please God because we, we won't enter Gentile territory so we can celebrate Passover and really please God. But, you know, we're trying to murder this guy. You see what we're capable of? They're no different than us. That's an unregenerate mind. So this twisted devotion we, we see it right there and we have to ask ourselves, what am I capable of doing? How does that translate to 2012? What form of hypocrisy do I personally participate in? In which I say, I'm trying to please God, but yet I'm going to do this on the side. I hope nobody notices. That's what we see going on here with these individuals. So I'll allow you to come to your own conclusions and what it might be in your life. Verse 29, we're told this, Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? Verse 30, They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. Now Pilate's been the Roman governor since A.D. 26, and he served a 10-year period of time. What we're told according to biblical and extra-biblical sources is this guy is arrogant, he's cynical, He's also someone who vacillates. And you can see that in the story we're about to look at. He goes back and forth a little bit. But what we do know for sure, according to historians, he's an incredibly violent, violent man. And he's capable of savage brutality. And he's merciless once he comes to his decision. You can read about that in Luke 13. Some of the reputation that he had among the people. Look at Luke 13 later today. So we're told, verse 29, Pilate went out to them. Very specifically, he recognizes the defilement issue. They don't want to come into the courtroom. So he obliges them, and he goes out shuttling back and forth. So at this point, Jesus is inside the courtroom. His accusers are out in the courtyard. They won't come in. Now, it's very logical in verse 29 when he says, what accusation do you bring against this man? That's the formal opening of a legal proceeding. He wants to know, what are your opening arguments? Present your accusation. Now, this shocked them because what he's doing by saying that is ordering a fresh new trial. And that's the last thing that they want. They don't want a fresh new trial. They're looking for a rubber stamp. They know the charges will not stand up in a court of law, especially a Roman court. But they want a death sentence and they want an executioner. So they brought him to Pilate expecting Pilate's just going to approve this and send him on. But instead, he says, what are the charges? That means a formal legal proceeding has been opened. Now, they're beating around the bush by saying, we wouldn't bring him to you if he wasn't an evildoer. Why such a belligerent reply to the leader of Rome? And how do they get away with it? Well, it was only 24 hours earlier that they had come to him and asked him to release a Roman detachment. As we saw a couple weeks ago, almost 1,000 men, a cohort, to go with them to arrest Jesus in the garden. So they've already been dealing with Pilate. So they've got some issues here. This belligerent back and forth. 
Now, if you want to make a politician suspicious, begin playing politics with a politician. That's what happens here. When they don't give him a straight answer, they'll find that Pilate is not anxious to get involved in any kind of a Jewish court case, so he tries to evade the issue. Go with me to verse 31. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said, We are not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the word. This is John's commentary, verse 32. To fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. So he fires back his own taunt to them. He knows they want him to execute Jesus. So Pilate decides to play a game. And the prize is Jesus' life. And he's playing the game with the Jews. Now, if the Jews alone decide to judge Jesus and execute him, he's going to die by stoning. That's the biblical way of them carrying out a death sentence is to stone someone. But we know, according to Scripture, God predetermined in his foreknowledge that Jesus would be crucified and that he had to hang on a tree, on a cross. That's what Scripture promised. God predetermined, according to Acts 2.23, to hand Jesus over. And we were told in the Old Testament the prophecy that when the Messiah arrived, he would be turned over and he would be crucified. Do you know that the prophecies of Jesus' crucifixion took place before Rome ever even existed as a nation? Before crucifixion had ever even been invented? God told them through the Old Testament to watch for this, and they totally missed it. Why did Jesus have to die that way? Because Scripture says that everyone who dies on a tree, on a cross, is cursed. And Jesus had to become a curse for me and for you. He had to take the wrath of God upon himself. He had to hang on a tree. Paul wrote about this in Galatians 3. Let me remind you of it. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, at this point, Pilate is ready to dismiss the case before it ever even gets started. He's ready to say, you take him and judge him then. He's unconvinced, and he's suspicious of their actions. Matthew tells us in chapter 27 that Pilate actually even knew that they did this because they were envious of Jesus' power. Look with me up on the screen. Matthew 27, 18, Pilate knew that it was out of envy. That's why they really did it. So their response, they realized they're losing. In verse 31, their response was, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. We can't do this, so they're forced to acknowledge it. What are they saying right there? That is a blatant confession. We're not interested in a trial. We want him dead, but we're not allowed to do it. We can't kill him. We need you to do it. John tells us in this commentary in verse 32 that all that was done, all this political bickering back and forth to fulfill the word of the Lord. He's thinking back to months earlier when Jesus told the disciples, we're going to go to Jerusalem now, and I know they want to kill me, but this is what's going to happen. Let me show you what he said. It comes from Mark 10, Mark 10, 33. Jesus said, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. 
You see the rest. They will mock. They will spit. They will beat. They will scourge. See, Jesus knew well in advance it was going to be a Roman death. They're going to give them to the Gentiles. And if, if you're not familiar with biblical language, Gentile is you. It's me. Anybody who's not a Jew, according to the Jews, are Gentiles. It's not a derogatory term. It's just a title. So Jesus was saying he's going to be handed over to the Romans. See, Jesus knew even the form of his execution, which tells me God controls the events even of Jesus' trial. This is no surprise to him. Ensuring that his word would come to pass. Why is this so important? Because the word of the Lord never fails. I said the word of the Lord never fails. Yeah, I had to do that with a nine o'clock crowd, so don't feel so bad, okay? It doesn't, church. So that means all his promises are true. The word of the Lord never fails, and you see it even in Jesus' trial. Now, on the Jewish side, not only do they need to find a guilty verdict, and they're up against this this Roman governor who's already saying, I'm going to dismiss this. Now they not only find a, they need a guilty verdict, they had to convince Pilate to find him guilty of a capital offense, something worthy of putting him to death. And that is no easy thing to do in a Roman court. Now, Luke tells us the background of what happens next because John skips over that also, realizing they have to come up with a charge that will impress a Roman judge. This is what they do. Look with me on the screen at Romans, or Luke 23.2. We found this man misleading our nation, that's charge number one, and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, charge number two, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king, Those are the three formal charges. These three charges, the nation being led astray, opposing paying tribute to Caesar, and claiming to be a king. See, the first two you can take out real quickly because indeed Jesus did not lead the nation astray. Jesus is the one who came and brought them new hope. Number two, He's the one who said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and under thing, the things unto God the things that are God. He wasn't telling people not to pay their taxes. But the third one, that's where Pilate landed. He did claim kingship. And there's no way Pilate can overlook such a threat to Rome. So that one really gets his attention. So he leaves the accuser standing outside and he goes back to the courtroom. Go with me to verse 33. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all record the very first question the exact same way. The pronoun you in the Greek language is emphatic. You! Are you the king of the Jews? Why emphatic like that? Because he can't believe it. He's looking at this one who's black and blue, shackled, beat, spit upon. How could you be the king of the Jews? Now, understand the expectations for an arriving king not only are high in Jewish prophecy, but are also high at Passover time. That's why Pilate's in town with such a large Roman detachment to keep order. He doesn't want chaos breaking out in the midst of Passover. It's happened before. 
And it'd be easy for a pretender to incite riot. So this throne in Israel has been vacant for decades. And, and Pilate's unconvinced. There's no way this guy could be king. So from a human perspective, he doesn't even look like a king. And if he's a king, where's his army? Where are his forces? How is he a threat to Rome? So this is what shocks me. He's face to face with the majesty of on high. This calm demeanor. Even though he's black and blue, his face is swollen. He's shackled. You'll see in a moment, he speaks with such dignity and authority. Pilate can't rectify this in his mind, and he can't reconcile the charges brought against this prisoner with the man standing before him. And he is clearly not prepared for Jesus' answer. Now, Matthew also tells us what Jesus' first words were. Let me show you this, Matthew 27, 11. It is as you say. And at that point, Jesus breaks into a cross-examination. He's doing a little inquiry of his own. Go with me back to John, John 18, verse 34. Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? What is Jesus really asking? He's asking the same question that's been asked of you and has been asked of me. Who do you think I really am, Pilate? Have you come to your own conclusions? What are your convictions? See, he understands Pilate's heart. And he's forcing Pilate to clarify for his own soul. Because Pilate's eternal soul is at stake too. You understand, politicians have souls, right? Okay? This is a politician. And his politician's heart is at stake. And God knows our hearts. God knows Pilate's heart. Does God know how to push your buttons? He, he knows how to push my button. He knows how to bring me under conviction. He certainly knows how to bring Pilate under conviction. And you can see he brings him under conviction. And he's asking Pilate immediately to search his own heart. Now, Romans don't think very much of Jews, and they do not like to be accused of anything. And so what you see next is disdain, that Jesus would even dare ask this question. Why? Because this is what people do when they come under conviction. He has this defensive reaction. Go with me to verse 35. Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? You could be familiar with that kind of reaction from individuals that maybe you've engaged with in conversation about God. Immediate negative reaction. Who are you to say that to me? I'm not a Jew. Now, this is a really frustrating case for him because it's true. Jesus' own have arrested him. Jesus' own have turned him in. So in Pilate's mind, where there's smoke, there must be fire. That's got to be what's producing this. What he did not understand, church, is that spiritual warfare is taking place. There's a battle in the unseen realm, and Pilate can't see it because he's not a spiritual thinker. He doesn't understand this. How did Jesus provoke such vehement hostility? Ephesians 6 tells us that we argue not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and wickedness in high places. There's a battle going on between the forces of Satan 
and God's holy power. That's what's going on here. So Jesus speaks to that. Go with me to verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. My kingdom is not of this cosmos. A literal Greek word used there. I'm, a, I'm of a different spear, a different origin from anything that you know, Pilate. But he does speak in terms Pilate can understand to a degree. He speaks of military strength. He speaks of geographic location. And Pilate's a military man, so he can understand military strength and geographic location. So in his mind, no military support. How can he be a threat to Rome? He doesn't relate to any geographic location. He's of no threat. How could he possibly be? But we understand when Jesus says, my kingdom's source is not the world system, we know this because we've studied the book of John for 50 weeks now. If we go all the way back to John chapter 6, we remember Jesus trying to feed thousands of people on the side of a beach at a lake. And because he provided so much food for them, they decided to put them, him on their shoulders and carry him to Jerusalem and install him as the king. But before they could, Jesus disappeared from their midst. Only five days earlier from this event, Jesus rode into town on a donkey and thousands gathered around him. Hoshana, 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 save us now. And Jesus would not accept the realm that they wanted him to have to be made a king. So his kingdom really isn't sourced in this world. He's already refused the title. What does he speak to in verse 36 when he says, my servants would be fighting? Who are his servants? Would you want Peter to be? Because he misses with the sword, you know. I wouldn't want him. He's talking about the angels. He'd already said to Peter, if I needed help, Peter, my father would send legions of angels to fight on my behalf. See, no earthly king would allow himself to be captured so easily. Now, do not mistake this. His physical reign over you in your physical presence will take place one day. According to Revelation chapter 11, he will reign over the earth. But for now, he reigns over your heart. And he is the undisputed king of kings. Go forward with me to verse 37. See Pilate's reaction. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus couldn't be more clear and more definitive. However, we know that earthly kings are installed by earthly action. When Queen Elizabeth passes away and there's a king of England installed, it will be because of human authority and human action. Jesus says, I came into the earth, I've been born, talking about his pre-existence, meaning I came and arrived here, but I came for a specific reason. And my reason is not political, I came with a mission. What's his mission? The same one that you have. And this is what I hope God speaks to you on this morning. The same mission that Jesus had in coming to planet earth is why he left us here and why our lungs are still full of air at this very moment. Because he expects us to do what he did in verse 37, to testify to the truth. And here's the word that he used, the word martyrio. When he said testify, he said, I'm the one who gives evidence. 
So when he leaves in Matthew 28 and he gives the charge to the church, go out into all the world and tell them you're testifying to the truth of who God is. That's what you've been called to do. That's why he says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And the, the Greek language hearing is not just auditory. It's auditory with obedience. You hear and then you act, you follow through. So you and I belong to a kingdom. We serve at the pleasure of a king. We should get t-shirts made that say, I belong to the kingdom of truth. I would wear that. That's what you are, you're truth warriors. And never back down from that. That's why you're here. Our kingdom has an objective. What is your objective as a kingdom warrior? Nothing less than the full disclosure of God the Father and Christ Jesus the Son. That's why you're here as believers in Jesus Christ. And it strikes me as fascinating that Jesus is more interested in removing the shackles from Pilate's mind and helping him to understand this than in defending himself. He's on trial for his life and he's not trying to defend himself. Even at death, his focus is trying to open up the thinking of someone who's got a closed mind. So this one whose head is in a noose, literally, is inviting his judge to become his follower. What's Pilate's reaction? This is where we're going to end today, verse 38. Pilate said to him, and here's the second big question, what is truth? Would you not love to have been in the room and heard Jesus' response to that question? He didn't get a chance. Because Pilate vacates the facility before Jesus can give an answer. What is truth? Well, you know, if you know the Bible at all, what Jesus' response would be. I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. No one gets to the Father except through me. Now, if Pilate really wanted to know the truth, he would at that moment give Jesus his undivided attention. That's why that question has continued to echo down through the centuries. People are still asking it today. Why do I exist? Why am I here? What is my purpose in life? That's Pilate's question. You see it laced right within there. You've got this three-word window into Pilate's heart. Does God know Pilate? He knows Pilate just like he knows you and I. And he's led him through this conversation to reveal what's really going on. The guy doesn't even understand what absolute truth is. He's lost. So laced within his expression is this catastrophe of man's rejection of the one true God. Because without God, there are no absolutes. And without absolutes, there is no universal truth. Is that clear to you? Absent of God, there are no absolute truths. That's why the Bible is so black and white about what God is and who He is. And Jesus came, John 1.18, to explain Him, to help us understand. So Jesus has just told Pilate, in no uncertain terms, He is a king. He's from another realm. He's come with a specific purpose. And those who respond to Him will hear the truth, the absolute truth, and the truth will set them free. John MacArthur really spoke to this very well, and I want you to see his quote on the screen about this issue of absolutes and no absolutes. Here's his quote. Without the absolutes of God, truth becomes subjective, relative. Objectivity gives way to subjectivity. 
Timeless, universal principles become mere personal preferences. Do you live in a time like that? Students, do you live in a time like that? Do you attend a school in which you encounter individuals who think like that? And truth is relative to you, but your truth is not applicable to me. There's no absolutes. Everything's gray. John really captured that well. John MacArthur, I mean. Uh, Many do what Pilate does next. It's very uncomfortable to have that conversation. So they avoid dealing with the truth and they exit the conversation. So I want you to remember this incident. The next time you engage in a conversation with a coworker or a fellow student at school or maybe a family member in your life who stands opposed to the things of God, when they get really uncomfortable and break off the conversation or leave the room angry, you remember, Pilate did it to Jesus. And if someone in those circumstances will do it to Jesus, they will do it to you as well. Here's the very incredibly painful moment, though, as a result of this. How close can you come to encountering the Lord of glory and still leave it at the table and walk away? How close. Pilate came that close if he had just stayed in the room a little longer to talk to the king of kings, to hear what truth is. That wrestling in his heart would have been dealt with. So in those few brief moments, Pilate came right to the edge and then backed off. But he came close enough to realize there's nothing guilty about this man. This is where it ends, verse 38. And when he had said this, he went out to the Jews, again to the Jews, and said to them, I find no guilt in him. It's the closing of the courtroom case. It's the adjudication. He's pronounced. He's not guilty. Now, I'm so glad that John recorded that for us, that we have that component, even though it came from a Gentile who was an ungodly man. What he's declared is that when Jesus went to the cross, even at the end of his life, he was innocent. He goes to the cross as the Lamb of God, unblemished on Passover of all things. So Pilate declares Jesus' innocence. He's correct. No valid indictment at the beginning of the trial. No conviction at the end. The trial failed, and the prosecuting attorney has a loss in his column. So this is where I'm going to leave you hanging. That's why I asked you to say yes at the beginning. Because what comes next is the brutal, savage beating of Jesus and the standing of him before the crowds. But there is so much power in what we're about to look at. However, we have to wait till next week. So I'm going to pray and ask that God would seal this in our hearts. And however he, however he wants to apply it to your heart, that's what I'm going to ask for. Would you pray with me? Father, your, your warriors are here and you see us And I know, Father, that because we've examined your word, that you are pleased that we would spend time out of our week looking into your word and the truths of who you are. God, thank you for what you revealed already through the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask, God, that as this week goes on, that you would continue to reveal truth and bring to light the things that you want us to remember. Seal it in our heart. 
God, for students who are living in dorm room settings where they constantly are attacked by the falseness of the world, I ask, Father, that you would give them the authority and the power to speak truth and to speak it boldly this week. For high school students, God, walking down the hallways, I ask that you would make them bold. Help them not to back down but to be warriors of truth. And Father, for those of us who work in office environments or in shops or in factories or whatever we do in the homes, God, help us to stand. Make us bold warriors for the kingdom of truth that we belong to. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Hope you have a great week, New Hope.